I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, Kristen's known to Walker here and we're doing another episode on our Be Awesome series on my show, Mental Health News Radio. We've got Dr. Christina Hallett with us. Christina, thank you for doing yet another show today with me. You know, this is so much fun. Maybe we should spend a day (laughs) where literally we just do one every single hour, right? Oh, I would be, I would be in a bubble of self-compassion, which we're going to get to how awesome we're going to be talking about that today. I would feel, I would be inspired. Any moment that I might start to feel insecure would be completely dissipated. The minute I hear your voice, that would be awesome. And even better, we have three people that spell their name, the first part anyway, Kristen, the right way with two eyes. Because there's a right way, right? <laughs> yes, I know, I know. Dr. Kristen Neff joins us, and she's been on the show before, but it's been a while. And she is the Associate Professor of Human Development, Culture, and Learning Services in the Educational Psychology Department of the University of Texas at Austin. She's the co-founder of the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, and her new workbook, the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, is out, and I cannot wait to get my hands on it. So, Kristen Neff, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, my pleasure. It should be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, we usually laugh a lot, which yes, is infectious, so, so yay for that. <laughs> I figure the more I laugh with and at myself, the more self-compassion I have. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. You know, Dr. Neff, I want to just say that I have absolutely so appreciated all of your work. Uh, I'm also a psychologist and I do a lot of speaking and I reference your work and your TED talk, the book, Self-Compassion. And I was definitely one of the early buyers and readers of the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. And I just have to read out the subtitle because I love Mm -hmm. it. And I'm hoping that you can talk some about it. So it's the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, a proven way to accept yourself, build inner strength, and thrive. And I love that so much. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, by the way, I have to say, I was so surprised. Our book sold out on Amazon in six weeks. 
They'd never seen wow. anything like it. It just kind of shows the need for self-compassion in our society now, which was, uh, oh, was really absolutely. wonderful. Yeah, pleasant, pleasant surprise. Yeah, so um, I mean, so self-compassion proven in the sense, now of course I'm gonna be a true scientist, nothing is ever proven, but mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, basically there's, there's over 1600 research studies now showing the benefits of self-compassion. So it's about as close as you're gonna to get to proven, right? Um, exactly. So yeah, there's a lot of empirical research showing that it's benefits. Um, the reason we wanted to include the idea of building inner strength is that some people are under the misperception that self-compassion is a weakness. And yet what we know from the research is that self-compassion, you know, is by far one of the most powerful sources of coping and resilience we have available to us. It is a strength, absolutely not a weakness. So we wanted to talk about that. And then, of course, thriving. I mean, one of the interesting things about self-compassion is not only does it reduce negative mind states like depression or anxiety or stress, it also um, produces positive mind states like happiness, life satisfaction, gratitude. So I think self-compassion really is a, a kind of special um, psychological construct, you might say. It's something we can learn how to do, something we can practice. And when we do it, it really changes our lives for the better. Oh, I could not agree more. You know, I think of self-compassion as like the secret superpower that yes. we are only starting to let people know about. And it is truly, truly amazing. Um, I was recently talking actually about self-compassion as part of self-forgiveness mm. and the uh, the element of self-compassion that's necessary in order to really feel judgment-free compassion for others. Yes, yes. Uh, well, it, it's, well, hmm. yes, yes and no. It's kind of interesting. Um, actually, a lot of people do pretty well at compassion for others and they treat themselves quite differently. But the problem yeah. is it can be sustained can be right. sustained over time, it burns you out. It is possible. In fact, I know so many people who are you know, truly kind, caring, loving, giving people to others, and who just treat themselves like crap, you know? Mm -hmm. um, right. but, but the problem is, is it can't be sustained over time, so. Um, I love that you say that it's not sustainable because I've been toying with, the more I've been practicing self-compassion, the more and really doing it and making it a, a habit and you know, yeah. meditating twice a day and all of that, I've been like letting go of anger and resentment at other people. I'm re-examining how I've looked at situations and coming from a different perspective. And I really had a bit of an existential crisis thinking, wow, have I never really been a compassionate person because I didn't have any for myself? So thank you for saying that because I don't feel like that's true. It's just no. that it never, yeah. it never stuck with me and took root like it does now where I really have this compassion for myself and I practice that on a daily basis. Right. Yeah, it kind of gives you the energy, the resources you need to be compassionate to others. So. Right. Right. And that makes so much sense so that you're really able to continue that. And then you get to grow and your relationships right. with other people get to grow. So it continuously expands. Yes. And what it also does is it helps you be less reactive. So when you kind of deal with your own 
personal distress or your own upset or your own feelings of shame, for instance, then that actually puts you in a better mind state to be able to be compassionate to others. So you might say it it gets it clears some of the blocks we have toward being compassionate to others. Um, so it's you know both are needed, right? It's not like compassion, self-compassion is more important than other compassion. Both are needed. It's just that the, the vast majority of people are much more compassionate to others than themselves. There's almost no one in the research who's more compassionate to themselves than others. And so what we're really doing is just trying to get yeah. a cultural shift and say, hey, we need to include ourselves in the circle of compassion. Otherwise, we're just going to be burnt out and not be able to function. There's yeah. a term out there called highly sensitive people. Mm-hmm. And um, when we when we talk about people that um, that are highly insensitive people, either they like it or they, um, you know, or they just are clueless. Who knows? What's interesting there is uh, there's a difference between when we're talking about people on that journey, for hopefully temporarily, is mm-hmm. there there's a lot of self-pity. And that yeah. that's very different from self-compassion. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two things? Yeah, so it's a really big difference. I mean, um, so self-pity is, well, really about the self. It's feelings of, you know, woe is me, this is horrible. It's kind of, we're kind of exaggerating how bad things are. It's very self-focused. Um, and the irony is, even though the word self is in the self word self-compassion, Self-compassion actually reduces the sense of separate self. It's just simply a, um, a process of remembering that everyone's imperfect, everyone struggles, everyone has an imperfect life. And when we frame our own experience in light of the shared human experience, ironically, we're actually less self-focused when we include ourselves in the circle of compassion. I mean, if you think about it, when you're being really kind and caring toward others and you're being really hard and full of shame and very self-critical, that's actually mm-hmm. a very self-focused state, you know, but just remember it's, it's okay. I'm human like everyone else. I make mistakes like everyone else. It's okay. You're actually softening the sense of separate self where self-pity is, is really quite the opposite. So, um, you know, this research shows, for instance, that self-compassion leads to greater sense of connectedness, more more um, thinking about others and one's own experience. Um, but it's really the other people that make the difference. You know, even the word compassion means to suffer with. There's an inherent connectedness in compassion that's not necessarily there in pity. Mm, absolutely. You know, the other part that I think about this, and I know that you talk about this in your various writings, uh, and when I'm trying to describe this to people, I talk about the degree of accountability that comes in when we're looking at self-compassion as opposed to self-pity. Because, right, as I understand it, what we're really doing is saying, I get that I'm a human and I struggle, as do all other humans, and I'm really willing to be aware and own what I think has gone well or has been challenging, that I'm not trying to diminish it or exaggerate it. I'm just literally accepting it as it is. That's right. Um, and taking responsibility. You know, that's another uh, myth people have is that self-compassion means letting yourself off the hook. It's actually quite the opposite. And there's lots of research now that shows like when you help people be more self-compassionate about something they've done, it actually allows them to take responsibility and to apologize because it's safe to do so, right? 
So absolutely. And so, for instance, we know self-compassion is linked to healthy guilt, and um, but but more healthy guilt, less um, unhealthy shame. So guilt is actually mm -hmm. a good emotion. If you hurt someone, you want to feel guilty. If you don't, you're called a psychopath. You know, we want to be able to say, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that." We want to we want to feel badly about what we've done. But shame is not not only we've done something bad, that we are bad. And the experience of shame is not healthy. It doesn't lead to people taking action to repair their mistakes. It's a very self-focused emotion that actually shuts down our ability to accomplish anything. Um, so self-compassion increases guilt. Now, a lot of people are surprised by that. But of course it does. You know, if, if you can say, wow, I really hurt you. I am so sorry. You're going to feel guilty about it but you aren't gonna be lost in shame and you're more likely to be able to apologize, fix the situation, try to repair it um, and then move on. That's the thing exactly I think about healthy guilt. You put that so well because it's this idea of learning from it, right? That's it's right. accepting the responsibility and really learning from it. So you get to be able to say, there's an action that I can take in that I can learn from this, I cannot do this the same way, I can manage things differently. And I'm always saying to people that sort of the good news is that we're responsible for our own thoughts, feelings, and actions, and we're not responsible for anyone else's thoughts, feelings, and actions. But that gives us an awful lot of responsibility that we need to face head on and say, okay, yeah, there are times as a human, I'm gonna screw up and I'm gonna own that and learn from that so that I'm facing forward, not backwards. That's right. And, and I have to say, I love what, what uh, Paul Gilbert says about this. It makes it even more complex. Um, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Yes. So in other words, we have to take responsibility. We have to do what we can. At the same time, you know, we aren't in control. Our actions are, are caused by so many other actions, our history, our family upbringing, our brain wiring, you know, the culture. And so we don't have to blame ourselves for it. But as you say, we're the only ones who can take action to try to correct the situation. So it is a lot of responsibility at the same time that we have to recognize we aren't in total control. And it's kind of this fine razor's edge that we have to walk of accepting responsibility while understanding we don't have control. But when you do that, and that's kind of what mindfulness is about and what self-compassion is about. When you do that, you kind of maximize your chances of um, you know, getting things done and not harming others or yourself. When you Absolutely. did your prior interview with Kristen Walker, mm. you mentioned a phrase that I guess came out of a conversation with you and Brent. Oh, you're so good that you listened to that. Got <laughs> I didn't even go back and listen to it. Thank you. Of course I did. Believe me, I've been following Dr. Neff very closely. And by the way, just as an FYI, we're working to get Paul Gilbert on the show. I think he's oh, fabulous. He is, and Dr. Yeah. Kelly McGonigal turned me on to him and I've read yeah. his work too. So yeah. this was the phrase that I'm literally hashtagging everywhere. And I've used it in probably the last 10 speaking engagements that I've had. And uh -huh. people are really resonating with this. So hashtag courageous presence. Yes, yes. Ooh. So since Kristen doesn't remember, can you talk well, about? I, I remember. Yeah. Well, which Kristen? Which Kristen doesn't remember? Yeah, Kristen this, Walker this, doesn't this, remember. When I do a show, I like give birth to it, and I don't want to hear it again. You know what I mean? <laughs> but anyway, yes. Let's talk about that. 
Well, that's that's um that's a, a phrase Brene uh, Brown used. She's so she's so brilliant at you know the way she communicates things. And you know we were teaching this workshop, and I was talking about mindfulness, and she said, you know, Kristen, I hate the word mindfulness. I mean, I guess from her point of view, it's like so abstract and kind of airy fairy. And she said, can we just call it courageous presence? And I thought that was just so wonderful because that's exactly what it is. I mean, it takes so much courage to be able to be with what is, especially when what is is painful, right? Uh, and that's why we don't do it. That's why we don't have compassion for others. We can't let in their pain. That's why we often don't have compassion for ourselves. We can't we can't accept the fact that we're hurting. We're trying to control it, get rid of it, which you know, of course just makes it worse. And so really having the courage to be present with our pain um, is what gives us the ability to actually start to heal it. My favorite hashtag right now is, and this is part of me being, uh, having self-compassion or courageous presence is hashtag faceplant. As long as I'm okay with the fact that I make 8,000 mistakes, but I really have a good heart, like that's a huge thing for me. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Christina. I've got, a new, I've got a new hashtag for you guys, and you obviously like these. This is one of my favorite phrases. It's by a, a meditation teacher named Rod, Rob Nairn, and he says, the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess. Oh, so compassionate mess, that. your new hashtag. Because it really reframes oh, it, doesn't it? If that's your goal, it's like, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm still not perfect. I've been practicing this for, you know, 20 years now. I'm still very, I'm still a mess. But I'm a compassionate mess. And it makes all the difference. You know, when you give up the um, agenda of trying to get it right, and you just do the best you can, but you always try to hold whatever it is with compassion and kindness, that is actually an achievable goal and uh, one that makes all the difference in terms of your ability to cope and, and to keep going in life. Fan so, so I'm now, now adding, adding courageous presence and compassionate mess. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. You've made my entire month. That is so beautiful. But literally the, <laughs> Some of the talks I've been doing recently have been primarily to other mental health providers mm -hmm. uh, as part of day-long trainings. And so when I've shared this idea of courageous presence to them, even though they're mental health providers, they know about mindfulness and they're trying to teach their clients about this, mm -hmm. it has resonated so strongly. They've yeah. really, I think, able to grasp that and feel as if they can sort of put their arms around that as a concept. And it's it's working fabulously, I think, to increase empathy and decrease the weak self-pity negativity that people have um, just seen self-compassion as. Right. Yeah. No, I think those perceptions are starting to change. It's a, it's a slow road, though. I mean, because our culture um, doesn't really consider self-compassion as a good thing. And all these misperceptions are so strong. Um, but I think things are slowly starting to change, at least some circles. <laughs> I know that you opened up your TED talk with describing yourself as a self-compassion evangelist, which yes. I completely love. That's fabulous. And mm -hmm. there is an exercise in your workbook, and it's one of my favorites. It's definitely one that I credit you with every time, but use liberally. And that's the compassion letter. Yes. Yeah. Oh, talk know. about that. I don't know about this. Just share yeah. with our listeners what that is. 
Yeah, so uh, when you write yourself a compassionate letter, um, and, and by the way, they're starting to use the same technique in research as well. What what happens, like in the moment, let's say you have a student fail an exam and you have themselves write a compassion letter, how does it change their behavior? So it's not only an exercise, it's actually a new research tool. Um, but basically, you bring the three main elements of self-compassion in writing form to whatever you're experiencing. So the first is mindfulness, right? Writing to yourself, kind of acknowledging, validating the difficulty of what you're feeling. And again, having that courageous presence, accepting the fact that this is what's happening. And then you write to yourself, reminding yourself of, of common humanity, the connectedness aspect of self-compassion, remembering that you know, it's not just you, it's not like everyone else in the world is perfect and it's just you who's who's struggling you know this is the shared human experience this is normal this is what it means to be a human and then really writing these words of kindness to yourself just as you would to a good friend you cared about and so when you know and the, the nice thing about self-compassion the reason it's such a teachable skill is because we we've already learned this skill you know by the time we reach adolescence we know how to be a good friend we know what to say, we know what tone of voice um, to use. We've kind of we built the skill of being a good friend. And so all we've got to do is really literally turn it on ourselves, treat ourselves like we'd treat a good friend we cared about. And those simple that simple act of writing. There was one study where someone had um, people write a compassionate letter to themselves once a day for seven days, and it reduced depression for three months and increased happiness for six months. That's pretty good bang for your buck, you know? <laughs> Those are phenomenal results, right? Yeah. And they're real. And I love the fact that there's increasing research in this area because for all of those people who want to fluff off uh, psychological concepts, I think that then when we're able to demonstrate how we really see these effects, it's not just that it's a good idea, it's yeah. a demonstrable, repeatable, really good idea. That's right, yeah. Yeah. You know what's been interesting for me is I'm noticing that when I was all about, you know, proving myself, proving myself, I, I always operated from what I believed was a deficit. I didn't even know that that's how I operated. It just, that's just what was reality it was I'm always at a deficit. And the more compassion that I practice, because it's not just a concept, you actually have to do things, or I did anyway, to practice this. And uh, what I'm what I'm finding is I get less and less involved in trying to prove myself or trying to rush to complete a conversation uh, with with someone. Maybe it's not going well or it's um, it, something feels off. I don't necessarily I don't always rush in to try to fix it. I found it really interesting to just sit back and even disengage and see it peacefully come to a resolution without any further energy on my part. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> when it works out, it's nice. <laughs> exactly. I don't think it would always work out, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's been like, oh, wow, there didn't need to be any kind of uncomfortable confrontation or, you know, for someone that always is like, well, we have to talk about it, blah, 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 to pull back and go, hmm, no, I'm going to let that one kind of ride 
has been fascinating. That doesn't work all the time, of course, but yeah. since I'm an over, let's communicate. Uh, yeah, no, I'm like that. Thing to go. I'll, I'll try that out. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. I'm a bit like you. I I just really want to talk about it. And it's hard for me to be patient to let myself. See, I'm still working on the compassionate mess bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting that you bring that up because I think about the fact that I used to, and I can clearly track where this came from, but I was definitely a person who would want to get a difficulty or a conflict settled because Mm. I didn't, um, I didn't want to have that maintain. And so I would definitely walk into a potential conflict rather than wait for it to sort of hit me from behind. And Mm. by the same token, I definitely always sort of wanted to finish things. And and I found that being more self-compassionate has let me really embrace ambiguity. Mm. And that was a skill development for me. I think of Mm. everything in terms of skill development. So I had to really learn not just patience, but tolerating and accepting ambiguity and that that was just fine. Yeah. The the part about meditation, I've never been able to get into meditation. I just haven't. Um, and I, the times that I did do it when I was younger, I would have these incredible experiences just immediately. First time I meditated, I felt that thing that people who meditate for a long time say took them years to get to where I was completely awake. I completely knew everything and could hear everything that was going on, but there was not a thought in my head. But I still shied away from making it a practice for many different reasons. And now, um, after working with someone who I call a signal booster, because she, she's a healer, and she just, these meditations I would have with her guiding them were like, how many planets did I just, or worlds did I visit during that hour and a half? My God, you know, just these amazing sessions. And then thinking, She's Dumbo's feather. Uh, I can't do it without her, blah, blah, blah. And then realizing with her much laughter from her, I am Dumbo's feather. You don't need me. You can do this yourself. Mm. So it's been this evolving into, yes, I can do this myself. And then realizing when I feel all this angst and I just sit down and I do a meditation and immediately connect and feel so much better and live in the space of gratitude. And I think, what was I doing all the years that I didn't do that? Yeah. <laughs> Talk about having compassion for self. Sit down and meditate. Mm. 
you know, that it's, um, I love hearing about how your experience with Meditate, Kristen, has been up and down, because I find that so many of the people that I know really, and I get it, you know, I'm there too. I I love how Pema Chodron talks about sort of that, you know, she's this expert at meditating, and yet she's still learning and practicing, and that her mind goes a mile a minute, because that's definitely my mind. And it took me, I discovered the magic of meditation actually in yoga, uh, because that was the first time that I had the experience of totally dropping the self-critical internal voice and the self-comparison voice and looking around at everything because I was so busy trying to figure out what I was doing on the yoga mat uh, that I got into the flow and matching breath and movement. And it was a complete sense of, wow, where did that time go? And how did that even happen? And that's sort of how I began to inch my way into learning about truly applying Mm self-compassion. You know, the nice thing about self-compassion, though, is it doesn't require meditation. Meditation is a good way to develop it. Mm-hmm. But um, so, for instance, I'm, I mainly do my self-compassion practice in the course of daily life. Whenever suffering arises, I just re- remember to give myself compassion, whether that's through physical touch or saying some kind phrases or just generating warmth to myself. And so what's what's nice is because, you know, not everyone has time for or is interested in meditation. Um, And the the good thing is it's not not required to develop self-compassion. You know, I think for mindfulness, it's Mm -hmm. also it's not required for mindfulness either, but it really helps with mindfulness training to set aside some time where everything's quiet. You aren't, you know, in the midst of your busyness. The thing about self-compassion is when it's really most applicable is when the you know what is hitting the fan. It's, you know, it's usually, you know, and you can you can meditate when you're upset about something, but also just in the course of being upset, you can just remember to be kind to yourself. And that's I think that's one of the reasons it's so accessible because it, it's good for, for instance, in research, we find it doesn't matter if you do it informally or on the cushion. Both are good as long as you practice. Right. It doesn't matter how you practice. Right, exactly. I think it's helped me be have more self-compassion because I just never stopped moving. And so to actively right. do something, anything, even if it was like, well, now I'm playing guitar too and I'm horrible, but yes. it doesn't matter. Um, yes. Just the art of doing that is like, oh, I'm doing something that's really kind to myself. And that's what meditation is for me. That's I right. have so much more compassion for myself because I would... Um, do this for myself and make a conscious choice to do this for myself on a regular basis is like, oh, I do care. How nice. (laughs) Yeah. And and there's so many things you can do. I mean, we call that behavioral self-compassion. So for you, it's meditating. It may be having a cup of tea, taking a walk, petting your cat. You know, in the Mindful Self-Compassion program, we talk about that the ultimate self-compassion question is, what do I need right now? And so just being willing to ask yourself, what do I need right now? And giving it to yourself is actually an act of self-compassion. And in fact, we also joke that sometimes, you know, let's say you're, you're trying a self-compassion practice and it's a bit overwhelming or maybe it's bringing up, you know, old memories that are distressing. Sometimes the most self-compassionate thing you can do is to stop practicing self-compassion in some sort of formal way and just do something else. 
But when you do it with the consciousness that you're giving yourself what you need in the moment, you're still building the neural pathways of self-compassion, which is one of the reasons it's, it's kind of so cool is it doesn't even matter how you do it. It's the attitude with which you do it that's most important. Uh, Kristen Walker knows this, but the my first book is entitled Own Best Friend. Mm. Eight Steps to a Life of Purpose, Passion, and Ease. But the own best friend is sort of the mantra that I use to yes. practice compassion. And I was super excited when, you know, I thought this was an original idea. And then I discovered everybody else was talking about it. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that's great. I'm in really good company. Um, yeah. But that's literally the thing that I use throughout my day. It's also the trigger that those who are closest to me use for me. So mm -hmm. if I, you know, because crap happens. There's no getting around that, right? And mm -hmm. so when I begin to dip out of self-compassion and into distress or misery or whatever, uh, mm -hmm. and I don't catch it, then my friends will say, own best friend, <laughs> walk your talk. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. And, <laughs> it, and it allows me to laugh, which I love, and to also say, right, that's my commitment because that's mm -hmm. something to value. And, and for me, that's my d most direct throughout the course of the day is that whole idea of how can I see myself and talk to myself and treat myself as my own best friend. But I have run into a few people who uh, really <laughs> become annoyed about that and, and sort of think that I'm being overly, um, I don't know, selfish or self-aggrandizing or something, you know, and think, mm -hmm. well, you know, that's uh, what does it mean to be your own best friend? And I don't uh, I understand where they're coming from. And that's not a philosophy that I buy into. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that, Dr. Neff. Well, I mean, that's just another one of the really common misperceptions about self-compassion is that it's selfish, is that it's self-focused, right? And I must say, uh, women are more um, sub, uh, susceptible to this misperception than others because women are socialized to always sacrifice their own needs to think about others first. And it can really feel downright selfish to actually think about your own needs and, you know, being a good friend to yourself. Um, but again, if, if you look at what self-compassion actually does, it's what gives you, as we talked about before, it's what gives you the resources needed to give to others. And, and there's, there's um, something else I like to always point out, especially to women and caregivers. It's kind of, um, it's true, but it's kind of a trick at the same time, which is that um, the way the human brain works is we're constantly empathetically resonating with others. We're constantly kind of uh, feeling the emotions of others at a pre-verbal level because the human brain is designed to do that. So you may, you know, you may think you're saying all the right things, but if inside you're full of shame and you're full of self-loathing or frustration, other people pick up on it, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that happens when you start practicing self-compassion is when you, when you are filled with kind, kind of kindness and acceptance, presence, connection, when you interact with other people, their mirror neurons are, are, are feeling your loving, connected presence, your feelings of compassion. So not only is it helping you when you give yourself compassion, you're actually directly helping other people by allowing others to interact with someone who's full of peace and calm and kindness, as opposed to someone who's full of like shame and frustration and you know self-criticism. 
So it, this idea that we, we even can separate ourselves from others is a complete illusion because of course we're constantly interacting and influencing others, each other's emotional states. So once I point that out, people think, oh yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> if I'm self-compassionate, other people will be interacting with someone who's more compassionate and they will benefit from that in a secondary way. So, oh, you know. that is that is really good. Yeah, yeah what, you, trip, what you're carrying true. around with you. Absolutely. Yeah, I think about that in terms of uh, when I've been around people who are very present. They're just yes. so present and um, they just sparkle. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I leave that situation. Well, when I do shows with you, Christina, where I'm like, <laughs> I just feel really good. And I, I, that's why I do so many, I mean, I do six shows a week, sometimes even more than that, because of this connection with other people and the guests and what they have to say. And, you know, we're not talking about widget making, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, we're talking about this kind of stuff. So I get something out of that. But even with that, um, noticing anyone who's just, they're firing on as many cylinders as possible and they're right there in the moment with you. That's amazing um, when you run into that. Um, and I know times when I haven't been present and I know times when I, uh, when I really am and I like the fact that being present is my home now. It's not my vacation where it used to be. That was my, um, you know, the place I lived was uh, in not being present. That was my home. So it's nice to see that shift and go okay 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 this is what this this feels like does that make sense yeah wonderful you know we chris uh dr f actually sort of mentioned this earlier but what it makes me think about is that whole sort of negativity bias that our brains have tended to have and, and that we need to have, right? We right. absolutely need to have an ability to be aware of things that are problematic and that that could be a danger, but that there's this bias towards seeing the negative. And I know, right. uh, Dr. Neff, in your workbook, you use one of my very favorite Rick Hansen quotes, which is that um, the mind is like Velcro for bad experiences and Teflon for good ones. And mm -hmm. I love how you talk about the fact that engaging in self-compassion really lets us be more aware of those positives in our life. And to really not be constrained just by this negativity bias, but to have a much broader range of emotion and experience and to just be more fully alive. Yeah, I mean, again, one of the one of the beautiful things about self-compassion is, you know, another way of describing what self-compassion involves is it's simply holding pain with love, right? We aren't getting rid of pain. We aren't fixing our pain. We're simply holding it with love and warmth and connection. And what that means is we aren't, we aren't, you know, we aren't getting rid of the negativity bias. We're still feeling the negative emotions. We're still learning from what they're trying to tell us. Um, we aren't suppressing anything, but the love is also there. And the love is a positive emotion. So instead of, you know, positive thinking, which is all about trying to replace the negative with the positive, this just holds the negative with the positive, but you're still generating the positive emotions, which then allow you to, you know, broaden your outlook and be grateful for what you have and to savor and, you know, all those good things that come out of the positive emotions. 
And uh, that's that, that again, you know, it's so funny that you called self-compassion the, the secret. What did you call it? The secret superpower. Superpower. Secret superpower. I call it the secret sauce. Anything you put it on, it makes it taste better. You know? Yes. Yes. Idea. <laughs> it's because like better it can, than salt. It can go on anything, right? It can it can it can go with anything. So that's what's that's what's so unique about it. I think you've used that phrase, um, which is, I think this is what you're talking about when you say uh, goodwill, not good feeling. Yes. Yeah, that's right. You know, and that that's another sort of hashtagable favorite of mine. I, I'm just going to create all of these things so that, you yes. know, we can yeah, promote yeah. you on social media everywhere. <laughs> I know you were just on Sounds True last week as well. Um, yeah. And you know, if I have anything to say about it, your message and your work is going to hit every single person in the world um, right in their heart so that they can take it and apply it and move forward. Because I personally think that our world needs uh, a lot more self-compassion mm -hmm. and a lot more compassion for others and the recognition yes. of each of us as, as human beings. Yes, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. I was just thinking, Mike. God, you're good at this, Christina. Like, <laughs> such a good host. I mean, it's, it, I love it. I mean, Dr. Neff, you don't know this, but we just started um, uh, doing these where she comes on and co-hosts with me. And I love, um, I love taking a back seat or a side seat and watching somebody else just shine. And mm -hmm. I think when I was younger, I might have felt like, oh, I should be doing that. Oh, you know, like I would look at it like and see all my flaws and how good they are. And yes. part of self-compassion for me is, wow, shine, 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 go, 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 go. And not feeling like I'm less than because somebody else shines. And that takes a lot of freaking work to get to that place. Yeah. yeah. No, it does. And the thing that everyone has their own unique ways they shine. You know, and positively negative. We all have our unique kind of weaknesses and unique strengths, and both are true. And you know, that's kind of what makes us beautiful. So. That's that whole idea of, I think, for me, that you know, uh, perfectly imperfect. Yes, and that's right. That I mean, because there's no way to not. We are imperfect. Like there's no such thing as perfection, and so why can't we? And then people argue that and say, "Oh, but I need to strive to be perfect." I'm like, "Oh, you're not going to get there." How about you say, "I'm so imperfect as I am, and I want to continue to learn and grow and develop." And so I'm going to tell you guys the ridiculous example that I use for this, and it probably only works if you actually like angel food cake and strawberries. But <laughs> the example that I use is, because I love angel food cake. So just plain angel food cake, I think is delicious. It is a dessert in and of itself. And then you can have angel food cake with whipped cream and strawberries, which is absolutely and delicious. Sauce, like a sauce, you know? Right, exactly. So to me, that's how I think of being perfectly imperfect. Like you are angel food cake just as you are. Aww. And you can bring in whipped cream or strawberries or whatever else, chocolate, I guess. I mean, whatever else that'll help mm. with little dopamine. Um, you can bring in whatever you want and be even delish, more delicious in a different way, but you're not less than at any point. Right. Yeah. And I have to say, I think there's a bit of a danger, you know, 
people like us doing what we do is that it is very subtle ideas of self-improvement can come in and it's, it's such a razor's edge i mean yes we want to learn and we want to grow and we want to be our best selves and yet sometimes hidden within that is this idea that somehow i might be better if i were to learn and to grow and not make the yeah. same mistakes i've made for the last 40 right. years you know um, and 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 it's it's both. I mean, yes, it's wonderful to celebrate the ways we've improved and some of the bad habits we've let go of. But it's you know, it, it really for me that this idea of compassionate mess is what I'm really working through right now because, you know, there are still a lot of behaviors I have that I thought I would be through by now at this stage of my life and my career. <laughs> Quite honestly, I'm 52 and I can't believe I'm still doing that. Um, but it's really, for me, it's it's really not about getting it right. It's, you know, obviously when I get it wrong, I want to apologize and own it and see it and have compassion for it. But this, well, this one meditation teacher, I think Rodney Smith says that there's this subtle aggression of self-improvement. Mm, the subtle mm -hmm. agenda that we're going to be better and grow is there's something kind of aggressive about that in terms of not accepting ourselves as we are. But yet, at the same time, there's also the truth that Carl Rogers says the curious paradox is the more I accept myself, the more I can change. And so both are true simultaneously, and I think it really does form a central paradox of the type of work we do. People are into mental health and, you know, spiritual traditions is how do we accept ourselves fully as we are, try to learn and grow without being attached to learning and growing. <laughs> you know, and that's 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 the trick and it is it is a challenge. Um yes. Yeah, so that's like why what you said about living in the same yeah. space. We we try to uh af say affirmations to ourselves that um you know we can affirmation ourselves to death where we just focus on positive memes and positive messages yes. like it's a, like it's this horrible sin that we must run away from to ever have a quote unquote negative thought and mm -hmm. that to me is a disservice so i love the, the what you talked about you know living in with both at the same yeah. time yeah um okay good i can be human and um you know have this tremendous amount of self-compassion and try to live in this incredible space of gratitude as much as possible. Wow, five minutes before I felt really grateful about something, I was really ungrateful about something else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, that, that piece too, it's the non-denial of what what is, not life is a mixed bag. So I don't wanna pretend like, if I just say enough positive affirmations, nothing negative will exist. Mm -hmm. I, I really believe in contrast. I can't, I can't really, there's so many things that have happened in my life that I, um, without those things that were painful and negative, I wouldn't necessarily appreciate so much the exact opposite of, of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and I, I think that when, um, when we simply recognize, I, I know I sort of said this before, but when we're recognizing what exists around us, what we've done, what we feel, how we think, how we act, and the actions 
of others. And we do that from a place of both self-compassion and compassion for others that we're simply acknowledging with kindness. And it's taking out the judgment mm. while keeping the responsibility and the accountability. And to me, mostly the awareness of like, yeah, I get that's what it is. So that, and sometimes it means sort of, I think, I think of it as sort of rolling around in the mud with it for a while. And, mm. you know, because uh, I love that vision of the lotus, you know, and I use that with people all the time. I'm like, no lotus grows without mud, I'm, right? I mean, <laughs> you're not going to get away from it. Right. So we don't want to pretend that. We, we just want to acknowledge and accept and be aware of that. That's right. And, you know, it, it's really this belief that somehow we should be in control Right. That really is the problem. Right. You know, it's it's such a fine line because we do need to take responsibility at the same time. that We have to give up all notion of control. And again, it's another paradox of the practice. I mean, this whole practice is full of paradoxes. But the idea that there is a separate individual self in control that should be able to get it right or improve, it's really part of the problem. You know, it's kind of stepping back and allowing the unfolding to happen um, without identification with it, but also not getting in its way. And that's, you know, it's I'm still working on it. <laughs> but I, I do know that that is the process that's happening. It's not me who's getting better. You know, it's just this life is unfolding through the eyes of Dr. Krista Neff, you know, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the less I take it seriously, the better off I am. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm going to read off the, the books um, and your website. So listeners, you have to go and, and get all this information and you can find it. Um, we've got self-compassion step-by-step. We have the book Self-Compassion and now we have the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. You can find all of these things if you go to self-compassion.org. Super easy, self-compassion.org. Just typing it in is an act of self-compassion. <laughs> So thank you so much for coming back on the show, We're at, especially when right before Thanksgiving. I'm sure you have 8 million things that you need to prepare for. So uh, thanks yeah, for taking it was, the time it was great. My fellow Christians, I've, I've had a wonderful yes. time. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to have you. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in and sticking it out with us all these years on Mental Health News Radio. But never without good intentions I heat up and act on my emotions Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.